0: Thank you for listening to the Share in Church podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at shareinchurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. We're going to continue now, and we're into this second part of chapter one. We did verses one and two last week. We'll do verses three through twelve uh, today. Um, what I want to do is I want to read through all twelve verses just to give us an overview of it, and then we're going to go back through verses three through twelve, verse by verse, and there's a lot. Like It's, um, it's written almost, it seems complicated the way that it is written, so we're going to take our time to dig into some of it. We're going to focus on a portion of it And then we're gonna couch the rest of it in that very theme of what I think Peter is writing and how he's writing uh, to to us there. So just to put things in context for us, Peter, this is the same apostle Peter, who had uh, denied Jesus three times at Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. He's the one who had denied Jesus as he was being beaten. This Peter, uh, who walked on water, uh, was called uh, the rock. He's the one who denied Jesus. We're now 30 to 35 years post that. After the, the death, the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, 35 years past that, uh, Peter finds himself, he's led the church in Jerusalem, he's getting a little older in age, and so now he's in Rome, and he's writing this letter from Rome. We learned that in 1 Peter chapter 5. He calls it Babylon. Babylon is kind of Christianese, a Christian code word of these days, for Rome. Babylon refers to any kind of an empiric empire kind of government that goes against the work of Jesus. So he says he's from Babylon, he's in Rome. He's writing this to the provinces in Rome um, that are full of Christians, most of them Gentile Christians, so not Jewish Christians, haven't grown up knowing the one true God. They've come to faith later, and he writes this letter to them. Because what's happened is, Nero has taken over as the emperor of Rome about 10 years prior to this. At the age of 16, he stepped in. Nero stepped in. Uh, He wanted to be more of a superstar, and to be famous more than he wanted to be a leader, and so he leaned into a lot of those things. There was a fire that happened in 64 AD in Rome. Uh, the people began to blame it on Nero, thought that he had ordered this fire because he wanted to destroy what was there to rebuild his own architecture. Nero didn't like the people, didn't like him, so then he started to buy, wanted to buy their affections back. That didn't work. So then he pinned the fire on Christians but it was a small group of religious fanatics who started the fire because they didn't like what we were about. He has them arrested, he has them tortured, has them killed, has them uh, put up on poles and then lit on fire to light his festive parties. He has them as actors in a play where they would be killed in front of hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Peter is writing at the beginning of that kind of persecution, and he smells it coming, and so he writes to the church the churches around the provinces of Rome and reminds them who they are. And the trial is coming, tribulation is coming. And here is how we deal with them. So let's read verses one through twelve. I want to um, try to put it in context for us and then we'll, we'll dig into some application. First Peter chapter one, verse one: Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's where we finished last week. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the very things into which angels long to look." I don't know uh, if you've been, how you do road trips and how you do that kind of thing. I know in in today's world, we have GPS on our phone, right? You can punch in coordinates or punch in an address, and then uh, you'll hopefully be led to that place. Then sometimes it comes up where there might be construction or an accident or traffic, and then Siri gives you the question, Do you wanna try this other uh, route? You will save three minutes. You're like, Sure, Siri, You, you see everything from your satellite in the sky, I will trust you with this. With my time, and so you choose that, and you go a different direction. Now, uh, before all of that, uh, there was uh, just the navigation systems that you would buy separately and put in your car. Anybody have one of those? And you put it on your dashboard, or put it in your car, right? And it was it was the map. You have to punch the number in, and it would tell you where to go. You could choose different accents uh, if you wanted to uh, from your navigation device. You had to name it yourself. It didn't come named already. You had to name it. Uh, that thing would happen. But before the navigation devices were something called MapQuest. Anybody remember MapQuest? Yep, so we'd go on trips, but you couldn't just punch it into your flip phone, your Razor, you couldn't just do that. Or into your Nextel, uh, push to text or push to talk. You had to do something different. So you'd go on your dial-up online, right? And it would take 35 minutes just to get online. And then you'd get online and you'd uh, go to mapquest.com and then it would take a little while to pull up. And then it would finally generate. Meanwhile, you're getting instant messages on your AOL Instant Messenger and it's an away message. You got some music playing on your MySpace and then this comes up. And you say, you have to type in where you are, because your computer doesn't know where you are at that point. It has no idea, which felt a lot safer than it does now. But uh, (laughs) no one knew where I was except for me. And so then you're looking at your computer, you type in where you are, and then you type in where you're going. And then a map would come up on the screen. But you couldn't just carry your computer with you into the car, so you had to print that off. You remember remember printers? You had to print it off uh, in your home. And then the ink cost $3,000, so then you didn't know how you had to print it in black and white because color was too much. And accidentally you hit color, and then it came out color, and your mom was mad at you. But you printed it off, and and now you have to take this thing with you into your car. And no one's telling you if you're on the right road or not, right? Except for your wife. She's telling you um, loudly. And then... Your, your, not mine, your wife was. And then, so you're there and you're trying to figure out where you're going and there's this line, but you don't know if you're on the line because it's not moving with you. So you have no idea where you are. MapQuest, anybody? Now, uh, before that, there were things called AAA tip, trip ticks. Anybody have one of those? you do that before? Okay, well, all right. You have to go to the AAA office and you would say, I'm going this direction from here to here and place an order. And they would give you sometimes a bag and sometimes a map, but it would be this weird thing that would flip over, and it would help you navigate where you were going. Sometimes it would tell you the best rest stops to stop at. Sometimes it would uh, tell you where construction was. Those types of things. Now, even before that, there were just maps. You had to buy a map. Anybody, anybody use an actual map to travel? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Lewis and Clark in the room. All of you are here. So you know how to use a map, uh, because you were in the Boy Scouts, and so now you know how to do that. You probably can build fires out of Flint. Um, You probably, uh, who knows what else you've done in your life, if you can use a map. But you, you had to have a map, and then you had to find out your beginning point. You couldn't just type it in. You had to go there. You had to be like, oh, where am I? Longitude, latitude, and then you figure out this is where I am, or you hope you're right, and then from there, then you have to find the right state in the map, and then you travel, and then you figure out where you're going from there. And before that, it's before the rest of us, but there were all kinds of other things like compasses. I mean, who, who, who knows? Um, but you, you set out for a road trip. So even in today's culture, you set out for a road trip and you, 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 put the coordinate, you put the address in and you have to hope you put it in right. You know what I mean? Because if you put it in wrong, like just one number on a zip code wrong, you're gonna end up in West Virginia and you meant to go to Conyers and you don't know how you got there. This is, this is taking a long time. I know the bridge is out, but gee whiz, this is taking forever. Why are there mountains everywhere? Why does that guy have a raccoon hat on? Where am I? I don't know where I am now, but that's, uh, that's road trips for, for us. So you have, um, you have your beginning spot, like where you are leaving from, and then you have your destination. And as long as those two things are right, you can pretty much trust what happens in the meantime. Now, at this point in our technology, even the meantime changes, right? Depending on traffic and flow and construction and that kind of thing, even that can change for us. Well, I want us to keep this in mind as we read through, back through verses 3 through 12. I think think as Christians, um, we're really good with... Where we've left from. I think we're really good with that. I think we have a decent idea of that. And then I think many of us have a pretty good idea of where we're going ultimately. But the problem for us is what happens in the middle. On the trip, that's what's what's disconcerting for us. That's where we don't have a robust, uh, deep, accurate theology of the present. So we're gonna walk back through this. I want you to keep that idea in mind. Let's go to verse three of 1 Peter chapter one. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he defines Jesus or God, God and Father. Circle that word, it's gonna be important for us. He's the Father of our Lord, Master, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ means Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One. Now, according to his great Mercy, Circle that word. According to his mercy. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to or by his or through his. And this word according to is a, it's a demonstrative word. It's, it's just strong. It means only through his great mercy. Now, mercy is the expression of pity, is what mercy is. According to God's great mercy, he has caused us. To be born again or born from above to a living hope. Circle that, we'll come back to it. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now last week we talked about how we are elect exiles. We've been chosen by God for such a time as this and we are exiles. We are in this world but not of it. We don't belong here and, and we begin to feel the rumblings of it. This doesn't feel like home anymore to us. That's what an exile is. But here's the danger, and Peter knows it. The danger is when we see ourselves as exiles, we see ourselves as elitist. In our own minds, in the flesh, when we hear that we are set apart, we're different, we're other than, we are in but not of, as Christians, we start to fall into the trap to think that we are better than the world. That we have somehow earned our exile status. That, that we've done the work. Look at what I've done. Look what I've abstained from. Look at the things that I don't do. Look at how I haven't worn certain types of clothes. Or listened to certain types of music. And so we begin to think that we've earned this ideal, this identity as an elect exile. And Peter here is reminding us it's only according to his great mercy, his pity on you and on me, that he has, he has caused us. He has, in fact, saved us. He's the one that set us apart as exile. We haven't done anything, but he has. Now, Christian, in today's world, it's easy for us to begin to believe that we are better than other people. Sometimes that's based on uh, theology. Sometimes that's based on the way that we view the world. It's based on who and how we vote. We have no business boasting about our exile status. It's only by the mercy, God's great mercy that has caused us to be born again. So Peter's reminding us of that, that we cannot elevate ourselves because of our set-apartness. And in these words, Peter is quenching that idea, and here's why that's important. For us to know how to get to where we're going and to know that we're on the right path, we have to trust the address we put in at the beginning. Our current location has got to be accurate for us to know the path to where we are going. This is important. Our salvation, how we got our salvation is important. Theologically, it's called soteriology. Our soteriology, how we are saved, determines the path that we will take towards our destination. So he's saying those things here, but again, look at the words. Mercy caused us, and now he gives us the word living hope. Now this word hope for us has gotten really fleeting and thin and like a vapor. Like, I hope so. I hope they win. I hope we get there. I hope she loves me. I hope. This word hope is more of a concrete Hebrews says it's the assurance of things that we, uh, faith is the assurance of things that we hope for, the evidence of things unseen. Hope is, it's concrete. It's it's going to happen. That's the idea. It's, It's a going to, not a maybe or an if. It's a going to. He's giving us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay. How did our hope begin? It began in the past with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How many of you by show of hands would say you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? You can raise your hand. Okay. Most of us in the room. We believe that. that. That's fact. That's the beginning of our journey. It's in the past. Now look at verse 4. So through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to. Now that's in the future. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. This word inheritance takes us back up to verse three where he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who gets an inheritance? The children do. And Peter uses the word inheritance. He's calling the readers back to their identity as sons and daughters of the most high king. And he's reminding them they've done nothing to earn this. You don't earn an inheritance. You're given an inheritance through the death of someone who's gone on before. So we've been saved through in the past, through by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now in the future, to, I'm doing it backwards for you, to the inheritance. That is, and here's how he defines it, imperishable, will not die, undefiled, not dirty, not messed up not rusted, and unfading. It will not go away. This inheritance is sure. It's steady. It's not leaving us. The resurrection of Jesus in the past happened. It's not going anywhere. It's fact. What's waiting for us in the future, our destination, the inheritance that we've been given is there for us, and it's perfect. It's undefiled, imperishable, and it's being kept in heaven forever us for you and for me. So we've got these two things situated. Then verse 5. You who by God's power are being guarded. This is a military term for a garrison that would surround somebody to protect something or someone. You are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the future in the last time. In the meantime Between the resurrection of Jesus and the time that is to come, eternity future, we are being guarded through faith for that salvation, for that saving, ultimate saving of our souls. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead and holds these things for us in the future is guarding us now in the present or in the meantime. So, Peter gives us a living hope, and I want you to notice where it's rooted. It's rooted in the past. He caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, who did it? God did it. God. God raised him from the dead. God has caused us to be born again. He is the author of our faith. God did it, not us. Now, in the future, to an inheritance undefiled, unblemished, imperishable, that's in the future, kept in heaven, By God, Who's keeping it there? God's keeping it there. Am I keeping it there by my behavior? Are you keeping it there by your behavior? No, God is keeping our inheritance secure in heaven. God is doing it. I'm not doing it. You're not doing it. God is doing it. God has set the beginning and he has set the end. This is God who has done all of this. It's rooted in the goodness and power of God at the resurrection of Jesus and the goodness and power of God of our inheritance, of our salvation at the end of days. Think back to the GPS, your navigation system, your triptych, your MapQuest. Think about all of that. If I leave from here and I set my coordinates for here, I have to trust what's in between. But there always comes a time, doesn't there, when on your journey... You run into something that doesn't feel comfortable. It feels uncomfortable or unfamiliar. If you ever run into those situations where you traveled this, you traveled this road thousands of times. You know how to get from your house to Grandma's house at Thanksgiving. But some, for some reason, this year you feel like you don't recognize your surroundings. Does that ever happen to anybody? You feel like I don't. This doesn't feel like I'm going in the right. Just me. I feel like I'm going in the right direction. I don't know if there's new buildings. Have they, have they um, torn down trees to put up a parking lot? I don't know. I don't know what they've done, but it feels, this doesn't feel right. It feels like it's a different route. There must be something, something feels uncomfortable. And because of that, you grab your phone and you begin to double check, don't you? Did I put the right court? did I put the right address in? Because it doesn't feel like I'm still in Georgia anymore. I don't, this doesn't look familiar. So did I put the right thing in? Um, Maybe, but maybe you're like this. Maybe you're not the one that put it in. Maybe it's your spouse that put it in. And so then you said, hey, where did you put us to go? What did you put as the destination? Are you sure you did it right? You know the zip code. Are you sure you did that? Does that ever happened in your homes, in your cars? Man, we'll work on it. What's, what's happened? How did, how did this happen? I don't recognize this. Are you sure you put it in right? Did you put the right address? Did you put where we were starting from our house? And not from where we used to live 10 years ago. Are you sure this is right? Because I don't recognize any of this. When things get uncomfortable and unfamiliar, we begin to check the coordinates. And sometimes you pull over and you say, is there any other way around this to get me back to where I was? So Peter has established, listen, your coordinates, your address, where you're leaving from, your departing address is correct. Your arriving address is correct. Now, in the meantime, you're going to hit some stuff that's unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Which is what he says in verse 6. In this, you rejoice. Some of your translations say you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, and then pay attention, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay. Death, or, Where we've left from and our arrival, it's it's right. But in the meantime, this doesn't look familiar. This doesn't feel like it should be the right path to where I am going. And Peter says, listen, because you have a living hope, because it's resting in the finished work of Jesus at resurrection, and it's resting in the power of God at eternity future, you rejoice now. Though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I think, as the Big C church, as Christians, as church for thousands of years, we've built a really robust theology around salvation. And I think we've built a really robust theology around heaven and eternity. But what the world needs is a robust theology around the present. And the truth is, you and I, scholars, pastors, Christians, we'd rather waste our time debating and arguing about salvation in heaven than dealing with the junk that we face every day. And so we'll argue about, did you put the coordinates in right? Did you put the address in right? Are you sure we're on this road? Did did your phone die? Are you sure? And instead, we've got stuff to deal with Now. Now. We'd rather argue about salvation and eternity. So even as we've talked through this passage, words like elect and foreknowledge start to rise to the surface. And we want to argue about that rather than deal with what does it mean now? How does it calm my soul now? How does it serve now? How does it bring God glory now? How is it for my good now? We'd rather, we would love, we would love to read Revelation and study Revelation. Why? Because you don't want to deal with today. Today. Because we'd rather debate and discuss who the horsemen are and what what the bulls are and what is an Apache helicopter. We'd rather do that than deal with the stuff of today because today is convicting. Because if we deal with today, it means we have to change some stuff. If we deal with today, it means we might just be viewing the world incorrectly. So we'd rather debate dinosaurs and creation. Then discuss the journey of sanctification today. Peter is here saying, you've got those two things settled. And they're not settled by you, they're settled by God. It's God who caused your salvation. It's God who's keeping your inheritance. Let's deal with this. Because when suffering rises, when suffering makes its way to the surface, when persecution or any kind of cancer or illness or divorce, when when those things make their way into your life, this and that aren't going to help you. So Peter is saying, In this, in the fact that God has settled your salvation and He has settled your destination, you can rejoice now. If for just a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, by show of hands. Anyone have been grieved by trials in your life? Anyone. Just keep them up. It's grief, it's awful. Trials are miserable. They break us down. They come out of nowhere. We don't see them coming. We grieve in the various trials. And yet, Peter calls us to rejoice. Which sounds like a really good coffee cup or bumper sticker or macrame. But in real life, I don't want to do that. Peter is letting us know that grief and rejoicing can go hand in hand. You can have both. It's not impossible to rejoice in grief. And Peter calls them various trials. This just means all kinds of trials. Now, this could be trials that are of health, trials that are of finance, trials that are of persecution, trials that come from beyond you that someone else has brought upon you, trials that you've created within yourself. Ways that your sin has led you into trial. Paul, Peter's speaking of all of them. Though now, and then he uses the phrase, if necessary. The question we have to wrestle with is, for the Christian, is suffering necessary? I would argue, yes. Absolutely. And we'll see here in a bit because suffering is what builds in us the character of Jesus Christ. That if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him the last day. Suffering is necessary for the Christian. And if you've adopted the belief that God loves you so much that he won't allow suffering into your life, then you don't know God. If you have the belief that once you give your life to Jesus, then there should be no suffering. I would say you have not understood the work of Jesus Christ. Who he himself says, God, if there's any other way for me to do this, would you let me? And yet he goes to the cross, suffers on our behalf. Yeah, suffering is necessary. But Peter is saying, listen, it's just for a little while. 10,000 years from now, whatever you're suffering today won't matter at all. You've been grieved by various trials. And then he tells us why in verse seven. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. I'm gonna skip this phrase in the middle because this is how the sentence is structured. So the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know why you can rejoice in suffering today? because the tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus returns. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, and then he he defines it this way, it's more precious, your faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Now, we read the word tested, particularly for those of us who have been in education system or have kids in school, and tested feels like an exam. And you either pass or fail an exam right? So then it leads to this faulty theology that testing only comes because you failed the last test. Now you have to retake the test. That is faulty theology. God doesn't give you tests to pass so that you can graduate to the next test. That's not what's happening. This is a metallurgy term. The idea here is is from metalworking. It's trying and testing. Some translations say tempering. He is tempering your faith. That's what's happening here. So that the tempered faith, the, the tried faith, faith, the genuineness of your faith. Then he refers to gold. Now, gold begins as ore. I'll show you a slide. This is, this is what ore is. It begins as ore. It's found as a mineral in caves or um, in, in some resort areas in Tennessee. If you pay enough, you can go find some. And you find this or, but or looks like this. Now, no women in here, no men in here are wearing an or necklace. No one has an or ring on. Like, isn't it a beautiful thing that I have on? Sure. So uh, it's very European. You, you, you should love it. Or uh, is this it's, it's gross, it's disgusting, it's, it's not pretty, and it's not strong, it's not useful yet. When you and I found ourselves in faith, when we came to Jesus Christ, when he rescued our souls, this was us. Now, there's gold in there, but it's nasty. There's edges to it. It's not strong. It's not pliable. It's not beautiful. We come to know Jesus, just like a metallurgist would find ore in a cave somewhere. He finds it. And he knows that to get it to where it needs to be, it's going to have to go through some tempering, some testing. This is what ore is. To get it to its purest state, the metallurgist uses boiling liquid, thousands of degrees Fahrenheit. Dip it in, pull it out. It's not ready. You're going to dip it back in. Pull it back out, and he'll test it, and all types of things to get it ready to where it is both beautiful and strong. This is what Peter is referring to when he says that we are being tested, the tested genuineness of your faith. The, the meddler, just the gold worker, knows that once this is purified, it is genuine. He can test the genuineness of it at that point. So, what Peter is saying is that God, in his goodness, boils us to reveal the genuineness of our faith. Not for him. Remember, it's secure. He saved us. He's got an inheritance coming, but there's something that we need in the meantime, and it only happens through the boiling pot of suffering that we are being transformed and if a metallurgist is going to do that with gold, even though it fades away, how much more would God do that with us because we are imperishable and eternal? Trials come so that the tested genuineness of our faith might be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So a few things for us. Because it seems like what Peter is saying is that trials and grief and suffering have actually come through, if not have been sifted by the hand of God for our lives. And again, we'd rather debate salvation and dinosaurs and creation and heaven and streets of gold and pearly gates than we would to talk about the fact that sometimes God has allowed suffering, not sometimes, all the time, God has allowed suffering into our lives to reveal in us genuine faith. We don't like that part. I wanna think about chubby angels playing the harp. I don't wanna think about this. Peter seems to be saying that Trials and grief and suffering are a gift from God, which means then for you and for me, we have to stop referring to our trials as some kind of punishment and start to see it as the very evidence of the love of God in our lives. Because if he loves you enough to purify you, then you're gonna have to start to see your suffering as the purification the redemptive love of God. And that perspective is the only thing that allows us to rejoice in our trials. I can look around the room and there's some of you this past week who are wrenched in trial. And I don't wanna be callous and harsh towards you, but I want you to know this, that God loves you so much that he is redeeming you through the fire of trial. That you might come out of it pure and beautiful and strong. Our hope in the past and the finished work of Jesus and in the power of God to keep our inheritance allows us to see the journey there as not a mistake, not a wrong turn, but as the power and love of a sovereign God. If you've trusted him with salvation and you trust him with eternity, can you trust him with today? But because we see this wrongly, because we don't have a robust theology of suffering and of the present, and Peter's getting his people there, because we don't have that, we're tempted to look for a way out so I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. God, rescue me, save me, set me free from this. Take me out of this situation. Take me out of this marriage. Take me um, away from these kids. Take me out of this job. And the whole time God is saying, don't you know I love you? Stay on the path. Stay here. James says it this way. Contemporary of Peter, James Says, tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, that should sound familiar to First Peter 1. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness also translated patience. It's, it's a faithful commitment. The testing of your faith produces a persistent patience. And then verse 4 is, is important. And let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The King James says, let patience finish her work. You cannot ask for a way out because you won't be made mature through suffering if you jump ship early. And we have enough immature Christians running around the world, posting things on social media. We don't need more of you we need matured believers who have stuck it out through the boiling water of redemptive love that they shine like gold to the world. If you've talked to people who have gone through suffering, you will rarely find someone who isn't thankful for what they've gone through. If you talk to someone in the midst of physical or mental suffering, even someone who's been there for a long time, and you're praying that they would get out of it, they might even look in your face and say, stop praying that I need this. Let patience finish her work. Let steadfastness have its full effect, because we're not there yet. We're not made pure through sanctification. We're not there yet. And the evidence is in the way that you talk to your spouse and treat your kids and talk about your boss. You know you're not there yet. In the way that we have a hard time rejoicing in trials because we haven't yet been made fully mature. Let it finish its work. Are you struggling in your marriage? Let it finish its work. Don't jump ship. Are you struggling with your kids? Let it finish its work. Don't jump out. Is there suffering at your job? Let it finish its work. You're being refined through the redemptive love of Jesus. If he handled the past and handled the future, he can surely handle your present. Paul David Tripp says that God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not have produced on your own. 41 years of life. And I would say so far for me, yes. And I wouldn't wish the ways that I have suffered and caused other people to suffer. I would not wish that on anyone, but I would say this, I don't want God to take it back. Because of what I've gained in my relationship with him that has settled the anxiousness in my soul. I don't want to do it again, but I'm thankful that it happened. He will take us places we don't intend to go to produce in us what you could not have produced on your own. This is why he calls it a living hope. It's not a hope that something did happen or that something will happen. It's a hope that something is happening. It's alive. It's living. It's here today. It didn't breathe once and then die away and it's not going to be born in the future. It's alive today. The hope of salvation and the hope of inheritance is alive today in the midst of our suffering. It's here and it's living today. Today is held by God too. We need a robust theology of the present. We're not just passing through. We're not just biding time until the end. He continues in verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In other words, so even though you weren't there at the salvation, you haven't seen him yet at the inheritance, you can rejoice now. Verse nine, that obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Not the salvation of your body, of your soul. Sometimes to save our souls, it costs us our body. Sometimes to save our souls, it costs our heart. Sometimes to save our souls, it costs our mind. But the outcome of our faith is the saving, the rescuing of our souls. As Brandon comes up, we'll continue here in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, Peter's gonna tell us, you know how powerful your salvation is? Listen, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he pre- predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In the past, there were prophets who wanted to know about Jesus when is he coming? What's he doing? It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but they were serving you. The salvation of your soul is so important. The things that we've read in scripture weren't about them. They were for us. Think God cares? It was revealed that they're not serving themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things in which the angels long to look. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but angels want to experience what we have experienced in the resurrection of Jesus. That's how robust your salvation is. Heavenly beings want to know what that grace is like. They want to know why we aren't stewarding it better, why we can't trust it in the midst of suffering. God has secured our salvation through the resurrection of Jesus, and there is an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. And in the meantime, we rejoice that we face trials of various kinds because we're being tested, we're being tempered, that we might yield beautiful gold, a mature faith that draws people to him and settles our hearts. Feel about your heads and close your eyes as we finish today. I know, I know that among the souls in the room today, there is suffering of various kinds. Suffering that has been brought on by the evil of someone else. Suffering that's been brought on by our own evil. Suffering that has been brought on just because we're in a broken world. But at the very least, this suffering has been sifted through the compassionate, powerful hand of the Creator, Sovereign God. So whatever has made its way to you is not more powerful than Him. And He is faithful to complete the work He began in you. And He has not left you, He is with you. And there will be more. What Peter is teaching us today is that we have to have a robust understanding of what that means and how to view it. What would it do for you to see your suffering not as a curse but as a gift? What would it do for you to see your struggles at work not as a problem that someone else caused but as a gift that the Lord is allowing into your heart that he might make you more into the person he's called you to be? And then when the next trial comes, you'll be a little more mature to handle it. And then the next one and the next one. Maybe today there has been suffering the Lord has allowed into your life that he might actually draw you to salvation. Sometimes the gift of everything falling apart is that we look for someone who can put it back together and that's only in Jesus Christ. The son of God, the one who created you And who knows your very soul. And if that's you today, that things have fallen apart, that he might put you back together. I'm going to ask that you let him today declare him as Lord of your life. Give your heart to him. Give your life to him. Become obedient to him. Find salvation in his name today. By admitting that you're a Savior, you're falling apart and you need to be put back together and believing that Jesus is the King. He's the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world who by his death and resurrection, you can be set free. Then confess that he is Lord. There's some of us today who need to begin to shift our view of our suffering. That we might see it as the redemptive, refining love of God today. Father, I love you. I don't like suffering. I hate it. It hurts. It's painful. It's convicting. It feels like it's never ending. And yet, you have proven your love to me. So that when the distractions come, when the unfamiliar, uncomfortable places on this journey of life raise their heads, Father, I can cling to the fact that you've handled the coordinates from the beginning, you're handling the coordinates from the end, and I can trust you in the meantime. And that in so doing, you're refining me. God, I pray that in 10 years, I'm a better follower viewer than I am today. Pray that for our church, pray that for our people, that you would mature us, that we would find a reason to rejoice even in the midst of the grief of suffering of various kinds. Renew in us a trust and a love for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.